that uh, we all need to be at the Amen Retreat. And we also learned that if graduates of UT behave themselves, they might get hired by a good old mess man. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. Uh, Coakley, you going to the retreat? All right. All right. Good. Sounds like you need it. All right. I'll be there too. Hey, guys, let's turn to Job 29. And let me, let me say as we come to Job 29 through 31, this is, this is really interesting. It's Job's sort of final summary of his case. And it's extremely helpful. I'll tell you why. Because we know from, from Job chapter 1 what kind of person Job was. And we are told in no uncertain terms that he was blameless and upright he feared God and he shunned evil. And we saw at the end of chapter 28 that wisdom is to fear God and shun evil. And we're told that that's the kind of person Job is. So we're expecting great wisdom out of Job. But Job is missing something. And oftentimes it's the same thing we're missing. He's missing the whole story. We've been let in on the mystery behind this story. Job wasn't let in on it yet. So when we were given Job 1 and 2, we were given the secret that unlocks everything, and it is that God is sovereignly in control of everything, and He has His own reasons for His own glory to subject His own people, even those who are walking uprightly, to some of the most awful uh, evils in this world. And we understand why. Because God has been challenged by the devil that when He saves someone, they might go back on Him. And God takes the devil up on that challenge and says, no, you can do anything you want to to Job except you can't have his soul. You can't take his ultimate life. You can do anything you want to him. Job will not curse me to my face. And Job has lived out his credibility and his integrity. And let's give credit where credit is due. Job did not curse God even though his wife suggested it. Uh, Job has a lot of problems. But he never lost his integrity with his relationship with God. So, I mean, it is an amazing story of a wise man who feared God and shunned evil. And yet Job is thrown into massive confusion. We've seen that his friends didn't help very much. They helped a lot until they opened their mouths. Uh, in the end of chapter 2 of Job, his friends came a long distance. They sat down with him and grieved with him for a week. Didn't say a word. They were great. Then they opened their mouth in Job 4. And they, they, they didn't help very much. We see in Job 3 kind of the, the anguish of someone who's suffering. And all of us have known that probably to a lesser degree, but our feeling, uh, certainly lesser degree in terms of what we suffered, but probably some very similar feelings. Because these feelings come whether you face the total disaster that Job seems to have faced or whether you face you know, a hammer hitting your, your thumbnail. You, you have these same sort of feelings. And Job unwinds those for us in Job chapter 3. And then we saw with Job 4 through Job 27, big passage two weeks ago, that his friends took off on giving him the best advice they knew how to give, which was based on the proverbial wisdom of their own day. And we've looked at some of those ancient texts, non-biblical texts, which reflect the ancient wisdom of the day. It's just like the ancient wisdom of our day. You know, we got all the Proverbs, you know, pity saved is pity earned, uh, you know, and, and all these kinds of uh, old wives' tales and other wisdom that kind of helps us frame up life and how it's to be lived. 
And basically it consists of, hey, if you work hard and keep at it and persevere, things are going to turn out all right in the end. And there's some truth to that. And you find it in the Proverbs. And you find it in some of the texts uh, that were non-biblical in Job's own day. But when you get to these extraordinary issues in life where suffering comes and you can't explain it, proverbial wisdom doesn't take you all the way down to the heart of the problem. And this is what Job and his friends had to understand. You may remember that, that uh, Eliphaz was a typical moralist. Job, there's got to be something wrong with you. This doesn't happen to people who don't sin. I mean, God is just, and so therefore you've got to count on the fact that he's just, he's just rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked, and you need to confess your sins. You may, may remember that Bill Dead was kind of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preacher. And he said, you know, God just trusts those who trust him. He, he gives to people who trust him. You just need to trust him. Gave him the old health and wealth message. And then you get to Zophar, and Zophar was generally a, a pietist. You know, Job, just let go of it and, and trust God, and he'll reward you. Uh, just let go and let God. And so the ancient wisdom that was brought to Job is the same kind of wisdom we get on the TV. Same stuff. And it doesn't work. Now, to add to all of Job's anguish, his loss of his family, his loss of his wealth, his loss of his health, Job was tormented mentally. And that's what I really want us to focus in on in these last three chapters. Let's look at some of the causes of that mental torment. Now, we might call mental torment in our own day depression. And depression is rampant and growing. The World Health Organization says that the number two cause for disability in human life around the world is depression. Number one is cardiovascular disease. Depression is number two, and the World Health Organization is predicting that in 10 years, depression will be number one. 15% of the United States population is on antidepressants. Uh, and let me tell you something. If I need them, I'm taking them. Scoot over, you know. I don't know, I don't know how many pounds of antidepressants it takes every week to keep the Amen Bible study going. But, but you can you could add me to the list, you know, uh, if I need them. I'm grateful for the drugs that God in His providence has given us. Now, obviously, drugs can be overused and misused and abused. And some people get misdiagnosed and they're using drugs when drugs really isn't the answer for their depression. But a good deal of the time, if you're prescribed for it, you probably ought to, you ought to give it a shot. At least try it. I mean, if it doesn't make you happier, it'll probably make your wife happier. I mean... Um, Depression is painful for you and it's painful for your friends and your family. So, I mean, you know, take care of yourself. And if, if things that are available to us today will help you, please use them. But it's, it's this growing crisis and epidemic, not just in our culture, but around the world. And uh, researchers tell us that probably 25% of the U.S. population will be depressed at some point or another. So, I mean, if you go to a church of... 400 people, 100 of those people are going to be hit with depression. And uh, uh, about 60 of them right now are depressed. I mean, that, that's a massive, that, that's epidemic proportions. Uh, now, there are lots of reasons for depression. Uh, what's interesting is if you study depression demographically, you'll find that uh, if I can just take evangelical Protestants, there's really no difference in the depression rate among evangelical Protestants and the population at large. That can be a little discouraging. 
there, there is a difference between the general population and the Amish. Why the Amish? You know, this sort of uh, Christian sect up, up in Pennsylvania and some other places. Uh, why, would, why would theirs be different? Well, the researchers say a couple of things. One is, one of the reasons for the increasing depression rate in our world, and in the West in particular, is because of the busyness and fragmentation of culture itself. We're just being invaded with all these messages and demands upon our lives that are fragmenting life. And if you look at the Amish lifestyle, they're sort of anti-cultural, aren't they? And they shield themselves from some of the fragmentation of life. And then the other thing the Amish have is a very tight social network. And one of the things that happens as a result of our culture is we get fragmented and we lose the deep family connection and neighborhood connection, social connection that we used to have 100 years ago. And that's one of the great cures for depression is you've got to be able to share the load. Uh, you've got to have people who will pick up your load for you, carry your burdens for you, and who will just take you as you are, your family, no matter what. And uh, so we find a, a lessening of that in our culture and in our experience, and therefore we're much more vulnerable to depression uh, than we would have been 100 years ago. But there's another cause. Uh, there, there are chemical causes, there are social causes, there are cultural causes for depression that affect every one of us. But, but there are other problems. And they're cognitive. There is a cognitive contribution. And, and that's what I want to, us to address this morning. It's not the only contribution to depression. It doesn't, you know, by thinking clearly won't lift your depression. But it certainly complicates it. And I would say in Job's case, it was a key contributor to his tormented mind was that he, was, he had distorted thinking. And if you'll talk to any of the counselors who are, who are here in our midst today and just ask them, what do you notice when someone's depressed? Almost inevitably, you'll get distorted thinking. It almost inevitably goes with it. And I'd like for us to look at some of the distorted thinking of a very outstanding person, Job, who was candid enough to let us in on his thinking. And we can one day thank him for that. Uh, and we'll see some of the distortions, even if they're minor compared to what some of us, how some of us get distorted in our depressions. We'll be able to see in, in chapters 29, 30, and 31 what happens when you have a theodicy. Remember we talked about a Christian theodicy early on in our study back in January. When your theodicy gets off base and that distorted thinking begins to add to your torment, we can see what happens and the dynamics of it here in these chapters. So I'd like for us to look at this. You see the comment that I make there at the head of your outline. There are things in this life that can send us into distress, depression, even despair, a state of hopelessness. During these seasons, our thoughts are often just like those of Job. Now let's look at them. First of all, in chapter 29, we absolutize our past blessings. Notice in chapter, in chapters 29, 30, and 31 are distinct elements. Those chapters happen to be, in this case, divided along some very clear themes. In chapter 29 is Job looking back at his history. Look at verse 2. He says, how I long for the months gone by. Why does he long for them? Well, first of all, verses 1 through 6, God's favor was palpable to him. He could sense God's favor in his life, he thought. He says, God watched over me, verse 2. Verse 3, his lamp shone upon my head. 
I walked, I walked in the darkness because I had His light. Look at that in verse 3. I didn't, didn't need physical light. I had God's light in my life. I could go anywhere. I was fearless. He was watching over me. Verse 4. I, had, uh, I was in my prime. You old guys, you ever think about it when you were in your prime? You know, didn't need those special little blue pills or anything else? You were, you were there. Uh, you say, Wilson, how'd you know what color they are? Um, so you were in your prime, and God's intimate friendship blessed your whole house. You were strong and virile. You had God's blessing, and everybody was blessed because they were in your house. You were the man. And he's, he's thinking about these old days, these good old days. And look, the Almighty was still with me. What a, there's a key statement of blessing. God is with me. And Job could remember fondly these times when he knew Emmanuel, God with us. He knew that God was with him. And look, his children wanted to gather around him. He was an optimist. He was happy. He had great stories. He was full of life. His children wanted to be there at his knee. It was just a great old time. And then verse 6, look at this wonderful poetic description of being blessed. My path was drenched with cream. Isn't that wonderful? Cream is just a wonderful blessing to put on your food, you know? Think of your strawberries just drenched with cream, all the cream you want, whipped cream even. And the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. I had soothing, healing, blessing. Oil is a sign of blessing from God. I had it. And so we, we remember God's favor palpably. And then when you turn to verses 7 through 11, you get to the, to the issue of man's respect. Man's respect was evident in Job's life. He experienced it. He knew it. And so he, he's thinking about the old days. And what about the old days? Well, look at verse 7. I went to the gate of the city. I took my seat in the public square. I, I was sat on the city council. Uh, I, I had a position of prestige. My opinion mattered to people. People respected me. I had a position. I had a title. People knew who I was. They see my car come down the street. Oh, there he is. They see me walking down the street. I wonder what he thinks. They, they, before they vote, they'd say, how are you going to vote? Uh, before they develop their opinions, they'd say, what did you think of that speech last night? I mean, I had my seat. The young men, look at verse 8. This is a wonderful, this is just tremendous uh, 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 way of expressing how he thought about life. He's a wonderful poet. The young men saw me and stepped aside. <laughs> young men saw me coming. They knew they couldn't hold a candle to my opinion. They knew that I had wisdom. They just step aside. Look what the old men do. They rose to their feet. Man, you walk into a room, whoosh, you're like the judge. You know, Chris Kraft comes to the bench. Whoosh, you know. I didn't notice anybody doing that when I came in. You know, just, <laughs> but just think of it. Everywhere you go, whoosh. Oh, no, don't, don't bother. Uh, you know, <laughs> the president comes in the room. All the press, whoosh, stand up. Job says, That's my, that was, those were good old days. And he says, look at the chief men. I mean, the heads of the tribes. They didn't even talk. They just covered up their mouths. They didn't have anything to say. They're chieftains. Everybody looks to them. But when I come in, they're not chiefs anymore. I be the chief. Everybody looked to him. Nobles were shut up. Their tongues, like they were stuck to the roof of their mouths. <laughs> they, couldn't, they couldn't get a word out. 
It's, it's, it's like Chuck Colson when he described people coming to Richard Nixon, the president. You know, they'd criticize Nixon. They were going to give him a piece of their mind. He says, as soon as they walked in the Oval Office, they were just kind of like this. They couldn't talk. He said, I saw it over and over again. Men were just kind of stunned in the presence of, of power. And Job is telling us that's the kind of person he was. Uh, and he look at verse 11. He had the praise of men. Everybody who heard me said, man, that guy's smart. And those who saw me said, that guy's handsome. I mean, he's just impressive. Uh, you, you just know he's an important person by looking at him. You know people like that. And Job was one of them. So he's looking back on his past, and he's, he's absolutizing it. And we'll get to that in a minute. But he's, he's saying, these were the good old days. What happened to those good old days? Those good old days should continue when I had God's favor and I had man's favor. And we know that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature with a favor with God and man. And that was part of Jesus' growth. And Job says, I know what that text would be about. And look at verses 12 through 17. Job is saying, hey, man's respect for me was warranted. There were reasons they respect me. I could put my finger on it. I know why they respected me. Job could look at his life and say, look at the good old days when I was known for this, that, and the other. Before I was known for being having boils all over my body and having lost God's favor and sitting on an ash heap. Let me tell you what people knew me for. This is the reason they respected me. I can give you reasons for it. I rescued the poor. I rescued them. And when there were orphans and they had nobody else to take care of them, they looked to Mr. Job. Mr. Job, can you help me? Yes, sir, I'll help you. And he did. Everybody knew that about Job. He was taking care of people. He was, the, he was the man. And look at verse 13. When a man was dying, he blessed me because he knew his widow would not starve. All the dying men looked to me. They knew I would take care of their family. I would not abuse their wives. Man, this guy is unbelievable. No wonder they, they admired him. And then he says... Look at verse 14 here. You kind of have the summary of it. He's saying, let me summarize this for you. You know the words tzaddik and mishpat, righteousness and justice, two key words in the Bible. Righteousness is conformity to the law of God. Mishpat is living in God's presence relative to the way you treat everybody in the world. He said, I wore those things like clothing. That, that, that defined my life. And that's the reason everybody respected me. They knew that about me. They didn't question my integrity. They didn't question my goodness. They, they saw it as my clothing. I took care of the blind and the lame and the needy and the stranger. People would come from other parts of the world. And everybody said, you need to go up and see Job. I was the welfare center for everybody. I was the traveling lodge for travelers. I was everything. And he's saying there were reasons that, that people did this because of our mercy, our social justice. We, we know that people, that people respect those things. And then look at verses 18 through 25. He assumed, and we assume, that man's respect would be permanent. Look at how he kind of, he kind of uh, dreamed in his own mind. Verse 18, he said, I thought this is what I was thinking in my mind. I will die in my own house. My days as numerous as the grains of sand. So I'm, I'm going I'm to just kind of go off peacefully. And it, it'll be a grand occasion. Everybody will be around me and 
to be saying these great things about me as I die and just kind of slip off into the night. And, and it, it'll just be a, a wonderful experience, verse 18. And I, I'll be a very old man when that happens. And, and look at verse 19. My roots will reach to the water. The dew will lie all night on my branches. So I, my life is so deeply rooted in goodness and righteousness and justice that no matter how old I am, I'll always have some fresh dew on my leaves. People will still come for refreshment to, you, to me even when I'm in my old age. And then he, he says, um, look, look at verse, uh, verses 21 through 23. He's saying uh, this permanent status that I'm assuming I'm going to have for all my life will mean that men will seek our advice. Men listen to us expectantly. Uh, we're, we're sort of, we kind of, you know, we get older and people just come, they just lined up outside, outside our door to talk to us because they, they just want our advice. And that's the way Job is seeing his life in. You know, I, I've talked to several of you who are uh, more senior and you've, you've really gotten it. You know, the role is not to do everything. The role is to help other people do it now. You've learned a few things, let's pass it on. And so you dream of yourself. Well, I'll just be this long-term advisor. Everybody will come to me. And verse 24 and 25, if I just smile on somebody, it'll just make their day because I'm just so important that if they know that I recognize them, if I can call them by name, it'll just change their life because they'll know, hey, he knows me. <laughs> this is the dream of a good old day. The good old days are that we knew that God was favorable to us because everything was working out just fine. Uh, men were respecting us and that respect would continue on forever and we could just imagine ourselves uh, having that kind of respect until we pass on. Now, gentlemen, uh, this sometimes happens to people. They really do have those kinds of blessings in life. But here's what I want us to do in each one of these chapters. I want us to think about some key truths that you've got to get nailed down because there's some distortion to Job's thinking. And I'd like us to correct that with some principles that we need, need to apply to our own lives as we look at chapter 29. Here they are. I'm, uh, if you just write these in. I didn't give you a place for it in your outline. Number one, from chapter 29, things will not always stay the same. Things don't always stay the same. Duh. Yeah, duh. But when you get whacked, you start thinking about the old days and you absolutize the way things were then. And they don't ever stay the same. Uh, I've, I've told you before, every decade has some nice little surprises in it. And I'm not telling you guys what they are. And you guys who are older than I am, you guys in your 60s, 70s, and 80s, don't bother. I don't want to know. I'll find out for myself. You know, don't terrorize me. Uh, and I'm not going to terrorize those who are younger. It just, they happen. And you'll find that you have some trials. And you can, um, you will, at some point in your life, probably, unless you, unless you die of a plane wreck, a crash or something, uh, you're going to face uh, declining things in your own life, and it's going to be depressing to you. You're going to tend to be depressed, and you're going to tend to go back and absolutize. Well, I remember when I used to run around and used to play basketball and used to be the best tennis player on the block, and you know, it just doesn't doesn't work that way. Things change, and your financial status sometimes changes. Just get ready for it. Uh, we are all subject to change. Secondly, the good old days were probably not as good as we remember. <laughs> It's amazing to me how we not only absolutize the past, but we romanticize the past. And people want to think of uh, Father Knows Best and the great 1950s. Now, look, guys, be honest. Were the 1950s that great? 
there were lots of problems in the 1950s. I, I, I don't remember the 50s, but I really remember the 60s, let me tell you. you. You can talk about how, you know, when the campuses really were politically involved and students were thinking globally as well as locally, and boy, I wish we had those days back. You can forget that. Uh, there were lots of problems in the 60s. And no matter how far you go back, you can talk about, boy, when we were rugged, you know, I'm 80 years old. I remember the Depression, World War II. Yeah, I remember them too. I read them in a history book, and I certainly don't want to have to experience that. Uh, so, you know, you probably romanticize the past when you get hit with a problem. And there's some romanticism here with Job. He's forgetting some of life's trials, no doubt. Be very careful that you don't distort your thinking to think there was a day when there were no problems. No, not really. Thirdly, in chapter 29, this is probably the key uh, problem. Material comforts are not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. Material comforts are not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. This was one of Job's big problems, that he identified his comforts and his prestige and his material ownership with God blessing him and his having God's presence. That will do a job on your mind. If that's the way you're thinking, if you think someone's blessed because they have that new car or they're blessed because they can go anywhere they want to in the world or they're blessed because now they can retire at the age of 48, uh, think again. Maybe not. Uh, you don't know. And that's what Job has to understand. God loved Job. God cherished Job. God used Job very powerfully for his own glory. And Job just didn't have a sense of it. That was the problem. He had no sense of it. One reason he had no sense of it was that he had associated in his mind that thick cream on the pathway of life as being a sign of God's blessing on his life. And what you and I just have to understand is that God is working with us in mysterious ways as we sang the other morning. God works in a mysterious way His wonders to perform he plants his footstep on the sea and rides upon the storm. So he's sovereignly riding upon your storm and he's glorifying himself in your storm and he's shaping you in your storm and he loves you and cherishes you in your storm. And we have to broaden our theodicy to realize that God doesn't justify all of his behavior in the moment. He justifies it over eternity. And without the eternal perspective and without the heavenly perspective, you do not have enough information to make sense out of the deprivation of your moment. So that is one of the key things to get out of chapter 29. Be very careful about how you romanticize and absolutize the past. But let's turn to chapter 30. And what we're going to get here is that we not only absolutize or romanticize our past blessings, we catastrophize our present sufferings. Now, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say this because... Job had a catastrophe. I mean, he didn't have to add anything to it to make it a catastrophe. It was a catastrophe. But what I'd like for us to see is that he does make his catastrophe worse. <laughs> so he does catastrophize a, a, an already existing catastrophe. Sometimes we'll take things that are not catastrophes, but we catastrophize them. And I'd like for us to see how we do that and how depression causes us to do that, but then this causes depression. And you get in this vicious cycle where you begin distorted thinking because of some, some depression, 
and then your distorted thinking spin, keeps spinning your depression. That's the reason that, that uh, antidepressants can be helpful. If they can just, sometimes what they do for you is just kind of get your nose above the waterline so that you can begin to get a hold of your distorted thinking. And because it's largely sometimes driven by your biochemistry or your electrochemistry. And if you can just, if you can stabilize that parameter, now you can begin to deal with your thinking that then starts to get you out of the spin cycle. So, so multiple things are often at play. But you want to be sure that you're addressing as much as you're able the distorted thinking and how you catastrophize your present sufferings. Now, look, first of all, in verses 1 through 11. Um, Job says, let me tell you what's happened to me. I, this is what my past used to be, chapter 29. Let me tell you what's happened to me now. Verses 1 through 11, the despise of the earth despise us. That's what it feels like. We used to have people... We used to have people who would commend us, who would praise us, who would say wonderful things about us. Look at how Job describes this poetically. It's absolutely wonderful. He says, but now they mock me. Men younger than I. You know, he talked about how the young men just step aside. Now look what the young men are doing. And they're not only young, but they're young men of the fathers that are, Job says, these were just basically not very well-respected fathers. It's their children who now despise me. Look at how he puts it. Whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. <laughs> you see some anger coming out here. I wouldn't even let those guys tend my sheep. I wouldn't let their, do- their fathers be my dog catcher. <laughs> and they're making fun of me now. That's how bad life has gotten. It's just complete turnaround. And you know how the male ego is very sensitive to how, whether we're being respected or not. And our wives miss it. They think that we're just big sex machines. Well, we are. But that's actually number two. Number one is that we're, we're ego machines. And, and this is no excuse for our pride. It's no excuse for not receiving our self-esteem from Jesus Christ. Okay, so no excuses for anybody. But just the way we're built. Uh, we're built to, to want people to respect us. And we have to deal with that all of our lives. And our wives often don't know what we're going through and the reason that they tick us off so much. They don't realize that when they give us a piece of advice, we're saying, I knew that. <laughs> I don't want any directions. You know, forget it. You know, we, because we have, we have a, a, an ego that's based on the perceived self-esteem from other people. And that's the reason that we tend to look to the outside. The, the wife looks more to the home and the inside. She's built more in relationships. We're built more in self-esteem. Uh, from respect from other people. And, and we, we take it like sponges. Look what's happened to this guy. He feels like it's just completely dissolved in the community. It, and that's total devastation. The most difficult thing about losing your job, you know this for the many of you in this room who have lost jobs. It's, I mean, loss of income is scary. But the, but the feeling of just being a cast off, that's the worst of all. That's devastating. And women don't understand that why losing your job is such a big deal. It, it just attacks you at the core of your being. I mean, there may be very good reasons. I mean, perfectly good reasons. It has nothing to do with you. But I know how you take it. I take it the same way. We all feel that way because we're men. And that's how Job was taking it. Every sign in the culture that he was respectable was taken away from him. And just look at people who have lost their jobs or lost their, their income. I was talking to a guy the other day whose friend, he's worth about, I should say was worth about $300 million. And he's lost everything. 
And my friend says, it's like trying to take an animal in the zoo and put him back in the wilderness. Obviously, he's not going to survive. He says, this guy has been living in a $300 million lifestyle. He's in a zoo. And now you want to put him out here? <laughs> he said, he will not function. I think the guy's just going to dissolve. And it's true. We, we, build, we get our lives in this bubble, and we, we think that we, we're entitled to certain things. And then we, we don't even know how to function. That's what was happening to Job. He'd gotten so used to this, his romanticized idea of real life, that he'd forgotten what life was really all about. So he goes on in those verses. <laughs> he says, verse 7, They braid among the bushes and huddled in the undergrowth, a base and nameless brood. They were driven out of the land. And now, verse 9, their sons have created songs to sing about me, to mock me. They're going about creating little ditties about Job. And, you know, what a slouch he is. And I've become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. Some of you have experienced this, where you had a position or an income uh, or a club membership, something, and you lost it. And you went into a group that used to pat you on the back and want you to be in their foursome. Now they turn your back, their back on you. You know what that's like. Well, in what Job is saying, my whole life is one big shun from other people. So he's describing his being despised by the despised. Then you get to verse 12 through 15. He not only feels despised, but insecure. The violent violate us. He says... In verse 12, on my right, the tribe attacks. They lay snares for my feet. They build their siege ramps against me. They break up my road. They succeed in destroying me without anyone's helping them. They advance us though through a gaping breach. In other words, there's been a breach in my defenses and now they're just rushing in to attack me. Amid the ruins, they come rolling in with their tanks, so to speak. Look at the summary in verse 15. Terrors overwhelm me. And here it is. My dignity is gone and my safety is gone. So he's lost all of his dignity, dignity and lost all of his safety. Now, <clears throat> he's lost a lot. And there's truth in what he's saying. But gentlemen, he's catastrophized it. Because he has not lost all of his dignity. Where is his dignity? His dignity is being created in the image of God. His dignity is being a son of God. And we know uh, from what the New Testament teaches us that by the blood of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and we are adopted as children just as surely as Jesus Christ is the son of the Father, so are we sons through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is our dignity. And we can have very bad things happen to us. And men can shun us and humiliate us in public. But we've never lost our dignity. And when we overstate it, all we're doing is adding to our depression. And we're in that spin cycle. And you need to get your nose above the waterline and get some things straight. You never had your dignity from what men thought about you. And your big, fragile ego was never the source of your dignity as a human being and as a man. The source of your dignity is God's view of you. It always was. 
And because of your past circumstances, you fooled yourself into thinking that you are who you are because people think highly of you. And that has fed the engine, and your engine has grown larger, and you're looking for more ego pats on the back and more self-esteem from the culture, and all you're doing is setting yourself up for a major disappointment here in a few years when you're on your deathbed. And you're losing it all, and you realize you can't take a bit of that with you, either the treasures nor the, the esteem of men. So you catastrophize and say, I've lost everything. No, you haven't. I've been humiliated. I'm no longer a man. Yes, you are. And there's a place that you get your manhood and you get your dignity and it transcends everything that anybody thinks about you. And frankly, gentlemen, that is what makes a man. If he knows who he is and no boss and no group of people and no nation and no terrorist, no anybody can strip him of his ultimate dignity. And Job was letting that happen to him because he thought that God had abandoned him because the material blessings were gone. And we're now into, we could say a well-deserved, but still, we're into a pity party. And once again, I, I hesitate to say some of these things because Job was suffering mightily. And I wouldn't say that directly to Job in the moment, and I wouldn't say it to you directly in the moment. And I'm not. I don't know what moment you're in. But as a general principle, when we're, our eyes are wide open, our minds are clear, and we're not into depression, let's be sure we set the framework down. We don't get our dignity from other people. So he catastrophized it. And neither do we get our security from other people. Jesus told a parable about this, didn't he? He said, you think you're going to defend yourself by collecting all your riches, building bigger barns. Gentlemen, I've got some news for you. I've noticed you're getting older. And I think you've noticed that about me. We started Amen 13 years ago. I don't look the same. Real obvious to me. And you don't look the same either. And I don't care how many barns you build. I don't care how, many, how great your medical care is. You are going to die. And you better have some security that covers death. And death or life insurance will not do it for you. It will help your wife and your children. But it won't help you one bit. You need some real life insurance. You need some security. And if you've got it through Jesus Christ who says... I came to give them life and give it to the full. Anyone who believes in me has everlasting life, he said. Now, there's security, and that's where you always had it. And what happens is you gain more material. You know what happens? You don't trust material less. You trust it more. The problem with the fragmentation in our own culture is our own physical blessings have only led us further away from trusting in God alone for our security. Now you look in the book of Judges, it's the same thing. It's just happening in a different century. So be very aware of catastrophizing whatever's happening to you. Did you ever have your security in a healthy body? Did you ever have your security in all of your family living forever? Did you ever have your security in your 401k not declining? Where was your security? Job catastrophizes because... Uh, he was putting his trust in some things and some conditions in life. And then thirdly, under that C, the worst thing is the Almighty abandons us. We have a sense that God is not there. He, he says, uh, now my life ebbs away, day of suffering grips, grips me. He describes it all. 
But the, the worst part of it is, he says, I cried out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you just stare at me. And then you turn on me ruthlessly. Look at those verses. In verse uh, 20 and 21. This is the way it feels. And you know what? Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there is a sensation. You know, Psalm 22 is where that came from. David said it when he was struggling. And the worst catastrophizing you can do in the midst of your suffering is to assume that God has abandoned you. The disciples got into the storm because Jesus said, come on, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Was Jesus a bad weather predictor? Bad weather man? Was it because he was a carpenter and didn't know anything about the sea that he did that? No. Was it because there was not another way to the other side? No. It was a very easy journey on foot. Some of you have made it. You can just walk right around the lake. It's just six miles across. No big deal. Walk around. You're going to have a storm. Jesus could have done that. Why didn't he? Because it's forever beneath the dignity of our Lord Jesus Christ to take you around the storm when he can take you through one instead. And he is, God is dignifying himself and, ironically, dignifying Job by taking him through this storm. And Job's distorted thinking is just the opposite. God has left me. He has abandoned me. He's no longer listening to me. God's more involved with Job than anybody. <laughs> Maybe that's Job's problem. <laughs> And, you know, in other places, Job says, God, would you just please leave me alone? Actually, that's more accurate. Job's problem is God's not leaving him alone. God loves him. That's Job's problem. It's the same problem that your child has when they don't like something that you as a loving parent provide for them, like discipline. They want you to leave them alone. You won't because you love them. Job's in a similar situation. So let's talk about some, some truths here. And it, let me just mention one because, because of time. Here's the main truth we want to get from 30. Our suffering does not necessarily mean that God has abandoned us. That's so key. Our suffering does not necessarily mean that God has abandoned us. It may be just the opposite. It may be the key sign of God's presence with you. People around you may lose their esteem for you. They may shun you. They may not commend you anymore. They may not think of you as a blessed person. But gentlemen, of all the people on the face of the earth, you have to know that you have God's blessing. Not because you're suffering or not suffering, but because He merely promises Himself to you in Christ. That's the key thing you've got to get. Don't catastrophize your present sufferings by saying God's abandoned me. He has not. When, when Elizabeth Elliot went through her tremendous sufferings with the Colorado Indians, took her, her a, a good long while to get her translator, and it took her a year to begin to develop the alphabet to do a Bible translation for the Colorado Indians in Peru. She went to go see her boyfriend, Jim Elliott, whom she later married, up in Quito, Ecuador. See, she makes a long trip on public transportation. Before she left, her only translator was murdered by his tribe because he was, he was dealing with the pale face. So she loses her translator. She takes her, all of her translation stuff with her, and on the way over, someone steals her bag. And so she gets to Quito. She's lost her translator. She's lost all of her work for one year. She has absolutely nothing. And she's reminded of that great phrase by Amy Carmichael, the wonderful missionary to India, who spoke of these strange ashes. And she entitled her book on this episode, These Strange Ashes. And here's her bottom line. She says, ultimately, it is in accepting what God has given 
that God gives Himself. It is in accepting what God has given that God gives Himself. You think you're empty-handed. You think you've lost everything. It's, it's only when you move in submissively to God's will in your life that you get Him. And that is the way you get the richest treasure of all. So don't think that your suffering necessarily means that God has abandoned you. Now, chapter 31 very quickly. We not only absolutize our past blessings and catastrophize our present sufferings, but we idealize our past performance. Now, once again, we've got to be careful. Job was blameless. He shunned evil. He, he was a righteous man. And when he describes himself in chapter 31 in these glowing terms, there's some truth here. And quickly, let's go through. You'll see in verses 1 through 12, he talks about his sexual morality. We idealize our past performance by describing our sexual morality. Some have called this Job's Sermon on the Mount because he's doing what Jesus does. He's not just saying it's just a matter of outward performance that I didn't commit adultery. No, look at verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. He's talking like Jesus talks. It's lust in your heart. And Job is saying, okay. I'm not like a Pharisee who says, uh, just don't commit adultery and you can lust with your eyes. That's what Pharisees were saying, that lust was okay. No, Job says, no, I get it. This is a matter of the heart. And he says, I've made a covenant in my heart, not even to look lustfully. And he goes through this, his sexual performance in uh, verses 1 through 12. And like a typical man, he starts with sex. And he says, look, I've performed here. And then you get to verses 13 through 23. He's saying on social justice, I, I have helped the poor. I've taken care of the, the, the widows. I've taken care of the orphans. I've, I, I've taken care of the naked, the needy. Uh, and on and on he goes. He, he says, look, if, if verse 21, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall off from the shoulder. Let it be broken off of the joint. If I've done that, I agree that that'd be a bad thing. Then you get to verses 24 through 28. And he says, look, I've only trusted. I've only worshiped God. I haven't worshiped riches. If I put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you're my security. If I rejoiced over my great wealth, if I've regarded, look at verse 26, the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor. That is, if I've worshiped the sun and the moon, like all these other nutcases around me, if I've been an idolater, then these would be sins to be judged. Verse 28, for I would have been unfaithful. So he's saying, I haven't been an idolater. Then verses 29 through 34, our love. He says, my door has always been open to the traveler. I've loved my neighbor as myself. Then you get to verse 35 through 37, kind of his closing argument. He says, oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of every step. Like a prince, I would approach him. Come on, let's have it in court. I want an appearance before God the judge. Our innocence. And then lastly, our workplace justice. He kind of ties it up with this. He says, Look, if I've if my land if this land cries out against me, if I've not paid people their wages or being unjust, then let it let it just be full of thorns. Fine. I I, just, I would deserve it. Woo. Now, once again, he was a righteous man. But here's some things we need to learn. We got ninety seconds. Number one, our walk with God does produce outward fruit. Job's right. If we say we have faith and not works, we're a liar. 
So there should be a, a difference in your sex life and your social justice and your worship and your love for your neighbor and, and your workplace justice. Of course. That's number one. Our, work, our walk with God does produce outward fruit. Secondly, the best man in the universe cannot stand on his own record before God. The best man in the universe doesn't have a record to stand before God. And this is what Job missed. Yes, there's outward fruit. It's not good enough. That's the reason that Job's call for a mediator, call for a redeemer, is fulfilled in Jesus, who does stand in our place, who has fulfilled those righteous demands. And now we have a case. And we can claim innocence. And we can hold it up and say, okay, let's see if there's any charge against us because it's all been put on Jesus Christ and He has fulfilled it for us. We now have a case, but you don't have a case on your own record. And lastly, the sorrows in your life are not necessarily punishment for God's sin, for, for your sins. Not necessarily God's punishment for sin. So your sorrows in life are not necessarily God's punishment for your sin. That's right thinking. It needs to address the distorted thinking that often leads to distress and to depression and to despair when you're facing the difficult things in life. Now, we'll move on. We'll get one more lousy speech from Elihu in our next lesson, and then God is going to open His mouth. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the teaching that You give us in Your Word about how to think rightly about our circumstances, that we may not be in despair. Keep us from such a state by trusting what you reveal to us in your word so that no matter what we face in this life, we may know who we are in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.